Hey, have you read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Has anybody read that? I see one hand back there, two hands. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards, famous American pastor from the 1740s. Uh, it's worth a read. It's a challenging read. It's, a, it's not because of the length. It's like nine pages. It's a sermon. So it's, it's uh, longer than my notes tonight. You'll be happy to know. But um, only slightly. So it's a, it's a tough read. Um, the story goes like this. Jonathan actually preached that sermon at least twice, once in his hometown. So there's, there's a revival going on in the Northeast, okay, and probably throughout the country a little bit as the first, they, they refer to it as the first great awakening. And Edwards gave this sermon in his hometown church, and uh, there was a little bit of response, but it, it really wasn't, there was no great movement of the Spirit happening. Um, there wasn't anything particularly uh, extreme that happened that night or that day at his own church. Well, a few Sundays later, July 18th, 1741, to be precise, um, he was not scheduled to preach in Enfield, uh, Connecticut, but a group of itinerant pastors, which are preachers that would travel a circuit, and they're, they're trying to take, a, take advantage, sounds like such a bad term, but they're really trying to take advantage of the work that the Spirit's doing and keep this revival going, do their part to be drawing people into this revival and this turning, this repentance and turning back to Christ. And this group of itinerant pastors picks Jonathan Edwards to be the, the preacher that Sunday in Enfield. And Enfield happened to be a town that was really resistant to the revival that was going on and quite resistant to the gospel in general. Um, I mean, they, they came to church regularly, but they were, they were just very resistant to the work the Spirit was doing in, in that time frame. And uh, as the story goes, um, Jonathan is reaching or reading through his sermon. He wrote out his sermons verbatim all the way through uh, and then essentially read them, although he wasn't, it wasn't like without emotion or it uh, didn't necessarily mean that he stuck to his script the whole time, but, but he did write out his sermons and, and read them most of the time. Well, the Holy Spirit was at work at that day. As the sounds of remorse, the sounds of repentance in uh, the church became such a distraction that he had to stop and ask the people to, to quiet down for a few moments. And he continued on with his sermon, and um, finally, the, the wailing, the, the repentant cry that was happening in the body was so overwhelming that it, they just had to stop. And Mr. Edwards, Pastor Edwards, and the rest of the preachers, pastors that were on the on the it was an elevated stage where they preached from in those days, I guess, kind of like this, except more so. Um, they all went out and were just ministering to the crowd, and there was a ton, of, just everybody was repentant and, and turning back towards Christ. There was a revival happening in this very resistant town of Enfield. And that event, along with this sermon that, that uh, Jonathan Edwards shared, um, really is credited with a large portion of the... Um, uh, of the revival that happened. And many people repented and surrendered to God in that day. So sinners in the hands of an angry God, isn't, isn't that an old-fashioned concept of God? That's the Old Testament God, right, that, that we hear about, the wrathful God. Um, so how is this helpful to us? Well, contrast. When you think about how precious stones, in particular diamonds, are 
uh, graded, how they're viewed, right? They're put onto black felt and then a bright light is shined onto them and magnifying glass to find the imperfections and stuff. So it's this contrast media that allows you to see the, the good things in the diamond, right? The black background. Very similarly, in understanding God's wrath and his grace, they're, um, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Uh, I want to give one preface here before we get too far along. It's, especially when we're reading the prophets, we need to keep in mind that they're describing punishment to those that are outside the covenant, in this case, northern Israel, the northern tribes, um, and chastisement or warning to those who are actually inside the covenant. And they provide that for us as well. They provide warning and or chastisement correction for us um, as they continue to serve uh, a warning to, to us who are in the, a new covenant relationship with the Lord. So setting the stage a little bit for where we're at in Isaiah, keep in mind that historically we're about 200 years after the kingdom has divided Okay, we've got the northern kingdoms, which is generally referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdoms referred to as uh, Judah. The northern kingdoms essentially removed themselves from the Davidic covenant when the kingdoms when the kingdoms divided. Um, The king set up his own. Well, they they chose their own king, or their king chose himself to rule over the northern kingdoms, and he set up. An altar in, Be- in Dan in the north and one in Bethel in the south. Do you remember what that was called? Does anybody remember the name of the king? Jeroboam, when it was called the Jeroboam cult. Uh, kind of an important term to remember, the Jeroboam cult, that basically describes the worship that was happening in, in northern Israel throughout their history. Um, so he establishes these centers for worship, all outside the parameters that God's established, and... Uh, Incidentally, the, uh, the altar in Dan has been found. It's been excavated. You could go there today and see it. The one in Bethel has, has not been found at this point. But It's also important to note that the northern kingdom never had a good king. Not one good king. The southern kingdom, Judah, had a handful of good, th- good kings. But the current one in this time frame we're in was Ahaz, and he was not one of them. He was not one of the good kings. Which is kind of interesting because the three, four kings before him we're all pretty good kings. Uh, the scripture says about them, including his father and his grandfather, that um, they did what was right in the, size of, in the eyes of the Lord, but not as King David had done. In other words, they didn't rid the land of idolatry. So they, they didn't meet, they didn't quite meet David's standard, and yet they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. In other words, they worshiped God, and, and they personally had that relationship and tried to do things um, tried to do things right, but they didn't lead their people well. Um, point of interest here, faith is not generational, okay? Growing up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Uh, young people, take note. Take note. If you're old enough to understand what I'm saying, you're old enough that you need to have your own faith, not rely on your parents' faith. Your parents' faith will not save you. You must have your own relationship with the Lord, not relying on your parents. Um, you need to learn what it means to trust God, having your own relationship with him. And now that relationship is going gonna, gonna to look a lot like your parents' relationship probably, but it's not going to be identical, and it's going to be something that you've learned and grown into. Um, but it will be similar. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, 
that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So back to our thoughts for tonight. So an angry God, why is this important? Well, Isaiah must have thought it was important uh, or thought that it would be helpful because in this passage, the passage we'll be in tonight, he has a lot to say about the anger of God. We're in Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 8. Sorry, I should have told you that earlier. Um, So Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 8, is where we will be tonight. And you're going to notice one particular phrase that that happens four times at the end of each of these uh, paragraphs, at least between... um, Chapter eight and chapter, or excuse me, chapter nine and uh, chapter ten. The first part of chapter ten, and it's this phrase: "For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still." Again, it repeats itself four times in chapter nine, verse twelve, verse seventeen, verse twenty-one, and then again in chapter ten, verse four. Um, Isaiah also refers to God's wrath and fury in uh, verse nineteen of chapter nine and. Chapter 10, verse 5. The text here is about sinners in the hands of an angry God. In fact, God, the most loving person in the Bible, is also the angriest person in the Bible. I don't know if that strikes any of you sideways, um, that God would be angry. Uh, If that seems offensive to you, maybe consider how you feel when you witness severe injustice. You want the bad guy punished. You want to see justice carried out. Um, and this is especially true if you're the victim. You know, once you become the victim of somebody's uh, terrible uh, actions against you, you want to see justice done. Our anger is generally unrighteous and vengeful. So we tend to conflate or confuse our own emotions with God's. But his anger is actually righteous. It's uh, pure and just and holy. Um, So if it helps you to categorize it better, maybe think of God's anger as his righteous justice because that's really what God's anger is. Um, The wrath of God in the Bible reveals not cruelty but humility. And it's demonstrated, or this is demonstrated, by his willingness to enter in, to enter into his creation and to get involved, um, to actually experience the cruelty that mankind can, can dish out. Um, it shows us that we matter to him. The Bible says God is love in First John. It doesn't ever say God is anger. But it couldn't say that God is love if his anger didn't exist. Now, this might create some visceral, some emotional response from us. Um, but is that really wise? Are we smarter than Isaiah? Uh, I don't think so. But God is actually better than we think he is in every respect. Even in his wrath, he's better than we think he is. A quick recap on where we've been and and come from in Isaiah. uh, And this is really brief. But Isaiah 1 through 5 describes the spiritual disaster that Israel is. And frankly, it also describes the spiritual disaster that we all are. Um, Chapters 6, 6 through 11 shows us the triumph of God's grace over their failure. Uh, In chapter 6, we see the triumph of 
of grace for Isaiah, and then in 7, 1 through 9, 7, the triumph of grace for Judah. And the section that we'll take two weeks in here between um, uh, chapter 9, 8 through 11, 16, we'll see the, the triumph of grace for Israel. So does, God, does uh, Isaiah believe in the wrath of God? Well, yes, but what he sees is the wrath of God taking us much deeper into God's grace than we would ever enter into on our own. Uh, much deeper than we would want to go, really. Uh, much like the people of in- Enfield being reminded of God's wrath, Isaiah is reminding through the prophetic vision that God's grace is incomplete without the wrath of God. So what is the wrath of God? Um, his wrath is active, resolute opposition to all evil. His delight, on the other hand, it's spontaneous, it's intrinsic, intrinsic. it's part of his very character. Um, but his wrath is provoked by the defiance of his creatures, by our defiance. His love will never make peace with our evil. Uh, and what we need to understand about that is that God's wrath is perfect, no less perfect than the riches of his kindness, kindness and forbearance and patience. His wrath is not moody vindictiveness, like we might experience. Um, rather, it's solemn determination, uh, like a doctor who's cutting cancer out of his patient. The difference is that it's very personal for God. It's not this clinical thing of, of uh, detached clinicalism, but um, this doctor, God, he hates the cancer. He hates the sin. But because he loves the carriers of the disease, he's going to rid the entire world of all of their afflictions. He's already scheduled the day of wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So we need to set aside our simplistic thoughts of God. The enormity, the magnitude of the gospel leads us to invent words like his loving anger kindness, um, which is kind of an odd word, right? Uh, loving anger kindness. We need to come to grips with who God is. In this loving kind, anger kindness, God destroyed the guilt of sinners at the cross of Jesus. And he will destroy all remaining sin in the hearts of those who take refuge in Jesus. He will destroy all injustice and suffering here in this world when his kingdom comes. The gospel forces us to ask some serious questions about God. Um, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath from the prophet Nahum, his wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Revelation 6. Consider this. Uh, the tsunami waves that devastated Asia in December 2004, they were triggered by an earthquake that was equal to about uh, a million atomic bombs. A million atomic bombs. So if you consider the, the power that this little tiny blue speck of God's creation has, consider how much more powerful the one who created that is and what he's capable of. Isaiah notices that his wrath works in two ways with opposite results. On the one hand, his anger condemns those who finally reject him. They prefer hell, and they'll get their preference. Um, 
Even worse, as C.S. Lewis warns us, it's not a question of God sending us to hell because in each of us there is actually something that's becoming hell if it's not nipped in the bud, if it's not cut off through God's grace. The matter is quite serious, so let us put ourselves in his hands at once. This very day, this very hour, this very moment, On the other hand, God's anger purifies all who love him. His fatherly discipline enriches us in everything. His corrective anger does not afflict us as we deserve, but only as we need. He's a good father. He only brings correction. You know, in our day, we've almost completely lost sight of the wrath of God. We don't talk about it in church very often. Um, You're the lucky recipients tonight. Uh, we don't talk about hell very often. We don't talk about wrath all that often, especially in our culture and, and society. It's, it's, it's rude to talk about hell. It's just not politically correct. But we can't understand or respect our salvation without an awareness of, of um, God's wrath and what hell is. Uh, the structure, the pattern that's laid out here is very similar to that that, that we, would have, we see in chapter 7 through chapter 9. There's this four-part pattern that's decision, uh, judgment, grace, and triumph. Uh, and here are the first two points, decision. If God's people choose evil, his wrath works with unrelenting force. And the second point is judge, and that's... Uh, Chapter 9, verse 8 through 10, verse 4. And then the second point is judgment. God rules over his unwitting agents. God's sovereignty rules over his unwitting agents. Uh, Chapter 10, verses 5 through 20. Um, Under both of those, a quick outline here. Decisions, if God's people choose evil, his wrath works with unrelenting force. The first point is that pride leads to humiliation, verses 8 through 12. A lack of repentance leads to irresponsible leaders, verses 13 through 7. I'll repeat all these. And then self-seeking leads to self-destruction, verses 18 through 21. And injustice leads to helplessness, uh, 10, 1 through 4. Uh, So let's jump into the text at verse 8 here. Uh, And keep in mind, as I mentioned, um, the northern tribes described as Israel, they're also described as or referred to as Jacob, Ephraim, Samaria. All of these are just speaking of the northern tribes. Um, So verse 8, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel and all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen but we build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. There's that phrase to watch for. It happens four times. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm, branch, and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches, uh, who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, 
and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion for their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll up uh, upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Chapter 10, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do in the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The outstanding feature of this, once again, as I've repeated multiple times here, is the paragraph, for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Isaiah is is telling us here that, um, yes, God has struck you, and he's not finished yet. Um, This is why the outline reads, God's wrath works with unrelenting force. He's unrelenting. Uh, Also take note, God has more resources for confronting us than we have tactics for evading him. He has more resources for confronting us than we have tactics for evading him. Um... In verses 8 through 12, Isaiah identifies Israel's basic problem, uh, pride and arrogance of their heart. Uh, what were they saying in pride and arrogance? What, where do we get this? Well, in uh, verse 10, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Now, apparently at this point, Israel has, been, has come under military attack and the bricks have been broken down. Trees have been cut down. So buildings have been destroyed, right? And trees have been broken down. And rather than taking note uh, of this and, and seeing what their adversaries have done, they're, they're laughing it off. In their prideful arrogance, they're seeing these setbacks just as opportunities to rebuild the past. They're just going to, just, we'll just do it again. It's not a big deal. Um, this time we'll make it better. We'll do it with polished stones rather than bricks. And we'll have cedar trees, which are much better than sycamores. Uh, Their unthinking, self-exalting past is what got them into trouble in the first place. After World War II, Winston Churchill wrote um, in his his memoirs or in the final history of the Second World War, uh, one of the main themes of what he wrote went something like this. Short quote, but quite poignant. He says, how the great democracies triumphed. And so we're able to resume the follies which had so nearly cost them their life. In other words, for a very short period of time, 
at World War II, the frivolity of uh, Western culture was interrupted by this great evil in Europe, right? And it spread like crazy, and, and uh, we were able to overcome that. And what Winston was saying is just in order to go right back to what we had been doing before. And this is what Isaiah is saying about Israel and Judah. They've, ex- they've experienced these adversaries coming and destroying them, and they're just laughing it off and going right back to, to their old ways, going right back to their sin, right back to their evil. Um, no reflection, no humility. But whether this comes as a sudden disaster or it's something that just creeps up on, on us or on them, events have meaning because God is at work in history. Uh, verse 11, the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The, the adversaries of resin are the Assyrians. Um, resin, another term for a particular place in northern Israel. The Lord himself raises them up. Do you see the irony here? God's raising up this evil empire in order to bring discipline against his own people. Uh, The Lord matches Israel's uplifted pride and their newly erected buildings and their freshly grown trees by raising up everyone's 19th nervous breakdown, the Assyrians, this uh, evil empire in the north. Um, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Israel ignored that truth. So God's hand was still stretched out. Secondly, verses 13 through 17, their lack of repentance leads to irresponsible leaders. So why do I say lack of repentance? Well, because of Isaiah's lament in verse 13. He says, the people did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. They didn't turn from their evil ways. They didn't repent and turn back to God. Um, When God strikes you, the worst thing you can do is run away from him. Let me give another little preface here, okay, because everything that we experience is not God striking us for something we've done, and it's not always God's discipline either. If you have discipline coming, Better that it's coming from God than someplace else or somebody else, right? Um, But we also just experience, living in a fallen world, we experience evils that are associated with the fallen world. Now, God's allowing them in our lives for particular purposes, uh, but it's not always discipline or punishment, okay? It's never punishment for somebody who believes in God who's in that covenant relationship, but it is discipline or can be discipline. Um. So Isaiah's lament, they didn't turn back to God. Uh, When God does bring calamity into our lives, the biggest mistake that we can make is to turn away from him instead of turning to him and inquiring of him. Uh, When Jonathan Edwards' wife Sarah received word that her husband had died far away in Princeton, she was suffering with her own affliction, so much so that she couldn't hardly pick up a pen and write. Um, But she wrote a letter to her daughter demonstrating how a Christian thinks of and clings to God when facing these kind of adversities. She wrote, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of discipline and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had my husband so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, 
and there I am and love to be. In our afflictions, the only way to run is to run to God. Israel missed that truth and chose foolishly. What came about because of it? Well, verse 14, the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail. That is, he cut off their leaders under whose influence the nation was coming unraveled. Uh, and God's hand was stretched out still. Verse 17. The third thing in uh, verses 18 through 21, self-seeking leads to self-destruction. Isaiah discerns the inherently destructive power of sin, wickedness that burns like fire, verse 18. The pain that sin brings, it's not in addition to sin or a piling up, um, but simply the outworking of sin itself. Um, And there's a deeper meaning as that wildfire of this discipline sweeps through a life, through a family, through a church, through a nation, through a company. Uh, Through the wrath of God, the Lord of hosts, verse 19, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. The wrath of God is in the the damage that sin inflicts. Uh, For example, self-seeking people are devouring one another. Verses 19 through 21. Of the last six kings of Israel, five of them came about through assassination. When people were unhappy with leadership, they'd assassinate them. Somebody else would take over. And this, was, this happened over and over and over in the northern kingdoms. Um, human sin unleashing itself on other humans. Well, how does this address us? Or does this address us? In Galatians 5, verse 15, Paul says, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And God's hand is stretched out still. Finally, in this section, uh, Isaiah 10, 1 through 4, injustice leads to helplessness. Uh, Isaiah envisions the corrupt elite of Israel huddling up as prisoners of war or tossed into a heap of dead bodies, um, as in fact actually happened when uh, Assyria overran Israel in 722. Look in verse uh, 4 of chapter 10 there. It says, Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. And God's hand was stretched out still. Whom should we fear? Whose favor should we cherish? Should we fear people and try to gain their favor? Well, no. There's a God in heaven who loves us more than they ever will. Uh, It's his wrath, not theirs, that we should be afraid of. It's his favor and not theirs that we should be seeking. It's not the powers of this world with whom we have to primarily deal, but rather it is God. Galatians 5, a little bit, expanding that verse a little bit, starting in verse 13, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Uh, The next section here, chapter 10, verses 5 through 19. This is a judgment 
on arrogant Assyria or, as I put it earlier, God rules over his unwitting agents. One of the interesting things about God's sovereignty is whether people like it or not, they're actually doing his bidding for him, oftentimes, um, whether they realize it or not. We see this in Assyria. They, they were proud and arrogant and thought that they were exalting themselves when in fact they actually were doing God's bidding for him. Uh, verse five, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. And against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few, for he, sell, he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Verse 13, for he says, by the strength of my hand, the king of Assyria says this, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bowl I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it, or, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Uh, the ultimacy of God, of God is Isaiah's point in these, in these verses here. Um, when we're beaten down by some Assyria or another, let's remember it's, it's only a tool in the hand of God. He says, ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. So the rod that God's holding, that he's using, the staff in their hands, the staff in Assyria's hands, that's my fury being poured out. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible about the sovereignty of God. Uh, what is the sovereignty of God? Well, it's his ultimacy as the king of the universe. It's his glorious throne from which he rules all things in unfrustrated supremacy. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, Psalm 115. Isaiah loved the sovereignty of God, but the nations God used as the disciplinary rod, that nation was itself evil. Assyria was evil. In fact, they've been called the Nazis of the ancient Near East. Um, but the problem was actually, it's deeper than that. Against a godless nation I send him, it says. And against the people of my wrath I command him. Well, wait a minute here. The people of Israel would have been saying, we're not a godless nation. Assyria is a godless nation, not us. Uh, how can you say, how, Isaiah, how can you say that God is sending that cruel war machine against us? But God doesn't respect a double standard. The sin he judges on the, in the world, he also judges among his own people. We need to be mindful of that ourselves. Belonging to God doesn't protect us from discipline. It makes us all the more accountable, actually, to be obedient to him, to obey him. 
If we refuse, in all practicality, we're godless if we're not obeying Jesus. God is able to use godless worldly powers to discipline his godless covenant people. Uh, Human oppressors don't even have to be aware of God to be useful for his purifying purposes. Verse 7, but he, Assyria, he does not so intend and his heart does not so think. He doesn't consider God. He doesn't realize he's being used by God for these purposes, Assyria that is. And then uh, verses 8 through 11 reveal what Assyria was thinking. Not only are they salivating over this idea that they can conquer the northern kingdoms, they're thinking they can go all the way to Jerusalem and and, uh, conquer Judah as well. Um, The tool in God's hand was very impressed with itself. They were very pleased with themselves. And here's a a little quote of, um, well, it's from the annals of Adad-Nirari, who was a, a leader in Assyria, between 911 and 891 BC openly expresses the mentality of, of the Assyrians. He says, in these days, when at the command of the great gods, my lordly sovereignty has manifested itself, going forth to plunder the goods of the lands, I am royal, I am lordly, I am mighty, I am honored, I am exalted, I am glorified, I am powerful, I am all powerful, I am brilliant, I am lion brave, I am manly, I am supreme, I am noble, I am humble. He didn't say that part, Um, right? Isaiah can see two facets of sovereignty happening here, or two different sovereignties happening at work. He sees the sovereignty of man, and then also the greater sovereignty of God. God's domain is able to use man's domain, whether man wants it that way or not. How can human power outflank a God with that kind of power? Um, Just because God utilizes human ambition, it doesn't mean he condones human arrogance. He used Assyria's ambition to accomplish his purposes, but it doesn't mean that he condoned their arrogance. In fact, they'll later be judged for their, for, um, well, they'll be judged for the way they treated Israel for one, but... Uh, Being used by God does not exempt us from humility before God. On the one hand, God is on the side of the victor. It was God's will that in 722, Assyria would come and um, conquer Israel, destroy them utterly. I mean, raise them to the ground and take all the people and scatter them throughout uh, nations that they controlled. But just because when we're defeated, it doesn't mean that God's defeated. Um... On the other hand, God is not on the side of the victor. So he's both on the side of the victor and not on the side of the victor at the same time. God judges opportunistic people and nations. He holds us accountable for our actions and the heart behind those actions. Um, Even when he uses them for his own higher purposes, God's able to use evil without being compromised by that evil. Uh, He holds every useful villain accountable for their actions, and no one is getting away with anything, not even arrogant speech and boastful looks. Look at verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Mount Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So a day of reckoning will come even for this tool that God's using. 
God appoints this day of reckoning uh, within history, the greater day of reckoning within history, and he has a day of final judgment waiting at the end of history. He talks about that in Acts 17.31, or mentions it at least. The, ruin, uh, the ruins of, of Berlin in 1945 bore witness to the wrath of God in our time, well, before most of our time, but in our century at least, in our uh, um, close, close by generation. Um, but the divine wrath of that future day won't be corrective in its intentions. It will be uh, decisive and judgmental and um, its effect will be eternally devastating. What the Bible keeps saying to us is that God will never accept human pride. Human pride, the folly of it is unsustainable. We see that in verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it? or hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it. Um, the user of the tool is not, excuse me, the tool is not greater than the user of the tool. Uh, verse 16, therefore the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, among the stout warriors of the king of Assyria. And under his glory, a burning will be rekindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body. And it will be as when a, a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of this forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In other words... Uh, the trees that it's talking about in the forest here, that it's the soldiers of Assyria. The, the, um, the army of Assyria will be wiped out. Well, this probably happened in 701. Uh, after Assyria came in and destroyed Israel and took them captive, and they came, remember, they came upon, uh, there was a siege at Jerusalem, and Isaiah was uh, ministering to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, unlike Ahaz, actually trusted God and did what he said and, and uh, repented and turned to God. And God said, you've trusted in me. I'm gonna, in one night, I'm gonna wipe out their army. And 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers in one night wiped out by a single angel. Um, you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter nine, I think it is. Uh, and then finally, after all this wrath and judgment, some hope in verse 20. It says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. And we'll talk about those verses, these verses of hope more next week along with the stump of Jesse. Um, and in wrapping up for tonight, uh, could take note of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where God reasons, reasons with us. He says, uh, why do you have that, uh, what, excuse me, God reasons with us in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, we've, we're receiving, we've received all these things from God. Why would we boast about not receiving them? Why would we claim them as our own? God's not some cardboard cutout, uh, He's a real person with real anger and real love. They're both just holy and pure and righteous, unlike our emotions. 
He has wonderful things that he wants to talk to us about. His grace can cover everything we've failed to be, but he's not, he's not going to negotiate with us. He's not a negotiator, especially about our self-exaltation. Um, when we struggle against him, our relationship with God, is a, it's, a, it's this dramatic engagement that we're in, something like a, like a bout of fencing, um, where there's a, a succession of offensives, retreats, feints, and rallies. We're, we're in this, like a play with God at times in our lives. Um, he may actually walk up to you at some point and punch you right in the nose and knock you to the ground. Kind of like he did Paul when he struck him blind. Um, or maybe consider Job. He might kick you in the teeth. But why? Why would God blindside us like that at times? Well, because the, sometimes the only way we'll listen is the hard way. It takes a two by four up against the noggin sometimes, right? Don't be that person. He would much rather lead us beside still waters, lead us in gentleness and peace. Be the one who's obedient and following him in that way so that he's not knocking you down. Um, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This idea that uh, and his hand is, is stretched out still. Just as I was considering how to, how to close, um, I'm not sure that these verses are tied together at all, but it reminds me in the New Testament and being in a relationship with a new covenant God that God's hand is still stretched out. God's hand was stretched out to Peter when he was walking on the water, and in an instant, he rescued him. Um, both of God's hands stretched out on the cross, reaching out to us, bringing rescue to us. And his hand is still stretched out. If you've not responded to this living God, to this God that is full of wrath and anger, but also grace and mercy, you need to. You need to respond to him today. Surrender your life to him. Uh, commit to following him. Commit to, obe to, commit to obedience. That's a sign of faith, Right? Obedience doesn't gain us anything around salvation, but it is a, a distinct sign that we're in a covenant relationship with the creator of the universe. So I'd encourage you to do that if you've not. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even hard passages like these tonight. Um, a lot of wrath and anger and uh, just things that are hard to absorb sometimes, Lord, but we also know that you are full of goodness and righteousness and grace. Um, Lord, we don't like discipline, but we need it from time to time. We need it when we're out of, uh, outside of your will. So, Lord, help us to recognize when we are experiencing that discipline and to cooperate with it, to trust you through it, to turn toward you in those um, times and, and whether it's discipline or not, Lord, we all experience um, difficult things in our lives, whether loss of loved ones or broken relationships or uh, just challenges that we face because we live in a fallen world. Lord, help us to remember that in all of those times we need to turn to you uh, and to cling to you, Lord, that you're the one who has us. You carry us through these things, Lord. It's by your grace and your mercy and love. Uh, that you entered in and absorbed the wrath with outstretched arms. Father, we are grateful for these things, grateful for these truths. 
um, thankful for the reminder of the existence of your wrath because the alternative to living in your grace and mercy is terrible, uh, Lord. And, and I pray that that drives us, Father, to share more often with others in our lives, people that, that we know and, and love and, or maybe even just a stranger that we run into um, like River did at the park, Lord, to, to just share the gospel with them uh, with childlike faith, uh, reminding them that, that you are the creator of the universe and that you love us that you have created for purpose with good intention and that even in a fallen world, you're at work bringing redemptive stories into people's lives, Lord. Uh, we thank you for all these things and just ask for your continuous reminders of them in Jesus' name. Amen.